everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of That's What B Said. Uh, as you all know, one of our favorite things is shining light on incredible women, and we have the honor of doing just that again tonight. Um, we are welcoming in Miss Britton Berry to the show. Britton, how, how are you? I am delightful. Thank you for asking. The sun's out this week, and it makes me a much better human when the sun's right? out. The weather really affects the mood. It really does. Daylight I mean, savings time, baby. That's right. It's light I out. Oh, I that's my favorite part about daylight savings time is that the sun sets at like 7:30. But you have to be really careful. I this happened to me once. I was hiking. This was like two years ago. I was hiking and we thought we had plenty of time. And it went from like perfect sunshine to like pitch darkness in a like the span of three minutes. And me and the the friends that I was with, we had to like stumble our way with our phone flashlights through the woods to get out safely. Well, I have to ask Britain because she's a mom. I, I, I was texting just the girls. They don't have kids yet. Maybe they never will because I, I ruined it for them. But um, I was saying how daylight savings time really does screw up toddler sleeping. It doesn't matter if it's turning the clocks back or forward. Mm-hmm. Everything's out the window for at least a week. Yes, I, uh, <laughs> I feel like I always get screwed over by daylight savings time being a mother. And- <laughs> Currently, it's so nice that the sun sets so late, but I have a three and a half year old who's like, the sun's not setting. Yes. It's not bedtime. Why yep. do I have to get ready for bed? And I'm just like, I don't. So the spring equinox happened, like spring solstice equinox. I don't know. I'm trying to explain it to him. And I'm like, you know, it's just the rule. And it's what I've said. So your sound machine's on, which means it's now bedtime. And it means you go to bed, but in the other direction, you know, the sun's coming up at 6am and next thing, you know, I have again, same three-year-old in my room saying that he's peed the bed because his legs don't work. Apparently he's told me this before. So he peed the bed and I'm just like, why are you doing this? And he's like, the sun's out. Yeah. I mean, it's. It's very sound logic. It's very hard to argue with a toddler when their logic is sound like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, they're, they're truly just like little, they're like little frat boys in a sense, you know, like they're just constantly, it's almost like they're drunk, but they're not, obviously they just act that way. And when you throw in a time change, it truly is just something else. I don't know what it is about it, but Mine do the same thing with like, well, the sun's not down. So clearly it's not bedtime. And I'm like, well, the moon sometimes is out at 5 p.m. So if you want to judge it based off of that, there we'll go, go to the bed when the moon comes out. Right. And he's just making up more excuses because the sun is out where, let's see, he has, he calls me or daddy and multiple times because his blanket has fallen off. And for some reason he can't get it back on his body by himself. I've seen that. Um, because he needs to sleep with a mean dinosaur and <laughs> I made the mistake of giving him a brontosaurus or an apatosaurus, but he would like a velociraptor or a T-Rex and a stegosaurus is somewhere in between and doesn't, he, he's into dinosaurs right now. But my favorite reason that he's come out of his room when he's not supposed to during this daylight savings thing is that he told me he sneezed and no one said, bless you. <laughs> I people think that parents make this stuff up but 
it is a hundred percent true. We Britain are in the my husband and I are in a rotating um system right now that every time my he's five and this is like still happening every time we put him to bed we have to leave the door open it has to be like an exact measurement you know not too far open not too far shut like specific and we have to lay in the hallway and watch him and you better be in that same spot watching him or he will sit straight up and be like you're not watching me Oh no! It's been a lot. It's You're scaring lot. her because she thought he was. He, she thought her sons would grow out of this by age five. But listen, I have a six and a half year old, and she, her nighttime routine is: I turn on a sound machine, a nightlight, and she goes right to sleep. My five year old requires ten math problems because he's really into doing math problems. The blankets have to be in a certain spot. Eight nightlights have to go on. The closet door needs to be shut. His door has to be open the perfect length, and then we have to lay in the hallway. So I, it really just does depend on the child. I will say that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not that nice. <laughs> Zion told me the other day that it was dark and scary in his room. I and he was like, "I'm afraid of the dark." And I said, "No, you're not." And I closed the door and walked. <laughs> I was like, "You weren't afraid of the dark yesterday or the day before. Why are you afraid of the dark today?" No, you're not. And I just. <laughs> Well, we're going to have to have you back on. It's just going to, we're just going to have a parenting show. I think we could do a full show on just there you go. parenting. Yeah. Uh, but we will get into getting to know Britain a little bit better. But before we do that, um, Britain, I have to bring up your tweet from the weekend because it was making its rounds on Twitter. Um, for those listening that may not have seen this, um, Chris McNeil, AKA reflog underscore 18, as everyone else knows him, posted a Kylie Jenner meme um, about your husband's off-season moves. And it, it was the meme that said, next thing I knew I was pregnant, <laughs> to which you directly responded and said, true story. <laughs> I have to ask you, when you responded to that tweet, did you know that you were going to automatically become a Browns Twitter legend overnight? No, not at all. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I'm speechless, which is very rare. I, I had a moment where after I started getting all of these replies, I uh, talked to a friend and I was like, uh-oh, did I make a sex joke? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, gosh. And then when Andrew came home that night, I was like, hey, so you know how you told me to stay off of Twitter? Well, I didn't. <laughs> and now I have... 600 new followers <laughs> and I may have made maybe it's a sex joke I don't know what I did um it is a true story because I mean is it I don't know I don't know what I I just know that the response is great I said true story because we are just really great with timing and Andrew his first round draft pick is going to be our daughter that will be born that is due on the first day of the draft. So I actually am pregnant. So. <gasps> oh my gosh. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. So I was like, haha, true story. And then I was like, I think I did that wrong. <laughs> I don't think people saw that the way I did. But yes, a friend of mine who is also a Brown's Twitterer, apparently her husband was like, you have to see what Britain just did. And I was like, 
I thought I thought I was just talking about being pregnant, but um, apparently I said something different, and now I'm really cool. So I <laughs> I don't think I'm as witty as Twitter thinks I am. I also I'm just like I'm real petty on Twitter, and so that's why I'm not allowed to go on Twitter. Oh. So I had I had a few moments that week where I was just giving people one word replies and. Um, I I was interacting well and within my zone, but I did have to warn my husband that he told me not to go on Twitter and I was breaking the rule and making somewhat of a little splash and maybe have made a sex joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Either way, I think it wins as the best pregnancy announcement ever. Yeah, for sure. That Absolutely. needs to go. I hope that you frame your re- tweet response and hang it in your future daughter's room like as like look what mom did like this was how we were announced we could put it on a shirt for you (laughs) we got a girl for that yes (laughs) i mean might be your bestseller so i it might just come out as your bestseller it just might not never know i mean the first one the first one did very well yeah 2020 the fansky berry 2020 shirt and I wore it very proudly and I still wear it proudly, except now when I wear it, I look like Homer Simpson. So <laughs> I can't actually wear it. However, um, I have my, that's what B said. It was before I actually knew who you guys were. I just really liked the shirt and I was living in Atlanta at the time. So I got to wear it all over the place. But then once I moved to Cleveland, there was a rule that I was not allowed to wear it outside of the house. So there you go. my coworkers <laughs> still in Atlanta and they see it, they've seen it many times. Um, when Andrew actually had his introductory press conference, I was very embarrassed to find out that my whole office had turned it on and pr- put it in a projector in Atlanta <gasps> and they all were watching it. Which oh my gosh. So sweet, but also like mortifying. <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> you guys have spouses that are like doctors and teachers out there saving lives. And they're like, yeah, but your husband had a press conference. So <laughs> we're all gonna watch that. So that was that was a little mortifying. But I got to wear I wore my shirt and I wear it a lot. And since my friends call me B, I tried to pretend like I was cool enough to make that shirt. And I shared it with uh Kevin Stefanski's wife and he also she also thought that that was a hilarious shirt and it's my favorite and I will keep wearing it we love that well as a fellow B with Britain you're welcome on that's what B said anytime you can be a permanent host if you would like oh yeah definitely absolutely don't think I am good enough at sports to actually be a host on your show which is embarrassing to admit I asked him when he came on I was like should I admit that I actually don't know sports that well and he was like maybe it's endearing so you know I I don't I would be a terrible host I would just be there for the social atmosphere um it's our favorite time of the show um to talk about hair that does not grow on your head um let's talk about manscaped so we all know our podcast is brought to you all by manscaped um the best in men's below the waist grooming something we've been talking about for the last few weeks we're going to continue talking about them um you know that they offer precision engineer tools for your family jewels 
We love their technology. We love their products. We love the lawnmower. We love the ball deodorant, the balderant uh, for the cave. And <laughs> Manscaped continues to be trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We would like to share our exclusive offer for our listeners. It is 20% off plus free shipping with the code fansided20 at manscaped.com. Again, just as a reminder, you can get the lawnmower 3.0, which we always talk about on the show. It comes in a perfect package 3.0 that comes with everything to keep you trimmed, cut free and smelling nice down there. Uh, the perfect package also includes the crop preserver. That is the anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. We've talked about this. You put deodorant on your armpits, so probably makes sense to put it on your balls. The smelliest part of your body. Guys, don't forget, again, you can get 20% off plus free shipping with the code FANSIDED20 at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. We like to laugh, and clearly you've provided a lot of That's laughs it. already. But like I'm, I'm sweating already because she's <laughs> making me laugh. I know. So and you know what? I have this like vein that pops out of my forehead when I laugh <laughs> a lot, and I've seen it like three times already. It's happening. Now I have goals. Now I'm like, I, I, I must stay out for the rest of this podcast. Also the snort. You got to get her to snort. Oh, she oh, did yeah. like twice. I've already snorted twice. Like I'm in, I am in my zone right now. This is my favorite thing. Who needs booze when you got girls like this, right? Exactly. I feel exactly. like before we move off of the Twitter thing, um, Brittany, I feel like you should fill Britain in on, on our experience with Brown's Twitter and the true pettiness. We have a name. We have a term for petty Brown's Twitter. Oh, yes. We, we need to introduce her to the term Dale. So Dales are the men who... We have this weird... Follow, like. I'd say my percentage of people that like me to don't like me is like probably like 40% don't like me to 60% like me. So it's almost like an even split, but they follow me because they hate me so much because, you know, we have this, this terrible habit of like standing up for different causes or being like, you know, for social things, which I know it's terrible because we should all just stick to sports all the time. But there's this uh, demographic that we like to refer to as Dales. And I like to think that they drive around with the big pickup trucks with, you know, the testicles on the bottom and just, you know, the, the flags and everything. And um, so feel free to, to use the term Dale anytime someone gives you a hard time. Um, you know, it's just, just uh, you know, since you're part of the B squad now. You have to know that Dale is, is a thing. There are, yeah. yes, there are sport it's, Dales. Like there's Browns Dales. There are, oh, what yes. other Dales did we identify? I political think I Dale. Have, political Dale. Political I may have Dale. had a, I may have had a park Dale in the past few days. Cause I tweeted about the Metro parks and then someone was like, cause I, I tweeted about how I don't think people talk about them as much as they should because mm -hmm. they're amazing. And I feel like anytime someone talks about what they love about Cleveland, they hardly ever met mentioned in the Metro parks. So I tweeted about that and someone was like, uh, they're nationally ranked or something. And I was like, yes, they are. They're nationally recognized as some of the, some of the best parks in the country. But I'm saying that Clevelanders don't talk about them. Like that was the point of my tweet. So like, it's it's essentially any man that talks down to a woman because he thinks that he knows more than her just because he's a man. So yes. any right. category you want, there's a Dale yes. for it. 
Weather, oh, we had Weatherdales too. Remember when they were arguing with us on? Oh my God. Yes. Oh, yes. Football, weather. Football, yes. Weather. football weather. That's weather. right. That's right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Welcome to our show. This is what we talk about. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Britton. So let's get into a little bit of your background and then we will talk a little bit more about what else you have going on. So um, tell our listeners, where are you from originally? I am from sunny Southern California. Oh, Yep. Mm-hmm. Born and raised. Um, I have, I, I'm used to summers where it's 113 degrees, which I know sounds really hot, but they're dry summers. And uh, just had some family members complaining last Christmas. They're like, oh, it doesn't even feel like Christmas when it's 81 degrees. And I was like, <laughs> I have no sympathy because guess what? It took us five hours to get out of our driveway on Christmas day. Because oh, yeah. guess what? Yeah. I have never had a driveway. And therefore, I did ha- not have a snow shovel. <laughs> I had a small child's snow shovel that I got as a gift for my three-year-old at Target. <laughs> and that didn't work. And Andrew <laughs> needed to go to work. So we were like in desperation mode. And everyone was like, oh, I think you need a snowblower. And I was like, it's Christmas Day. I don't have a snowblower today. So... <laughs> Um, I'm learning a lot about how to survive this for the long haul. And um, I now have two shovels that are adult sized, still don't have a snowblower, but from California, that was a long way to answer your question. No, that's, that's great. I feel like Cleveland, California, Southern California, especially like very similar. So it's no adjustment at all outside of snow, right? Just definitely the same. Um, and again, we did some research on you before you came on our show and, um, you're a graduate of both Harvard and Yale universities. So much smarter than all three of us combined that host this <laughs> show. Um, can you tell us what those experiences were like? Because we have no idea what that would be like. Yeah. I mean, I would say the first thing I would say is that those experiences were like actually changed the course of my life in the best way possible. I grew up, I was raised by my grandmother. We grew up in what the numbers would consider in poverty. Um, in like not a, we were in California, which is nice. But other than that, um, we had, I would say some really rough times financially. And where I was growing up, kids were not graduating high school, let alone going to college. So uh, I I was very blessed to be able to be raised by a woman who told me over and over again, the only way to get out of that situation was education because nothing can get you out of there except education. That's what she told me over and over again. She would find college stickers and put them on our bumper. And I was like, oh my gosh, look at all these colleges my mom went to. Uh, I call my grandmother my mom. I'll interchange it because she raised me. But then I go in high school to apply for college and she's like, I don't know what to do. Um, and that was a big culture shock. And I, to this day, I think at least once a year, thank my college guides counselor in high school for telling me to apply to Harvard because it, I, I wasn't going to do it because we didn't have any savings, but that was the first year that they did the cart Harvard financial aid initiative. And I think that year, if your household income was below like 20,000, you worked through school, but you also, like your parents didn't have to contribute anything. And I met that qualification 
So that was just, it, it totally just like changed my world. I'd never been to the East Coast before. Um, I had never met people like that before. I got introduced to some like things that now seem really silly. I remember I walked onto the track team when I was there. I love track and field, um, but I was not good enough to be recruited. And so I walked onto the track team while I was there. And uh, I remember these girls on my team who were like, oh my gosh, did you see the new coach bag? And I'm looking at our coach and looking at his bag that he had. <laughs> oh. I was like, hmm. It, I'm sure that is just a torn up side satchel thing. And then like the next day they're talking about it again. And I was just like, Paul's bag is not that exciting. And I learned that there was like a brand called coach. Like it, that was just like a small part of what I was learning, but also it's just, I, being in a different part of the country was amazing. Um, walking onto the track team and being able to stay there. And I actually, until recently, I actually held a school record despite the fact that I was not a long jumper when I started and then became a long jumper halfway through and then held the school record for like nine years and long jump. Oh, so, wow. Um, I love, I love track and field. What, 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 are, what other events? So I, because I walked onto the team, um, I was just desperate and I went to said, said coach with the coach bag. <laughs> and I said, can I be on your team? First, I went to the sprinting coach because I was a sprinter in high school, but I was division four in California for California is so big in high school sports. That there's like five divisions of sports just to get to the state championship. So I was in division four and I wasn't recruited. So I asked him, the sprinting coach, since I had done like sprinting and hurdling in high school, can I be on the team? And he's like, no, like I didn't recruit you. I would have recruited you if I thought you were good. And I was like, okay. And then I went to the high jump coach. I didn't know how to high jump, but he was also <laughs> the like the multi-events coach. And I asked him, can I be on your team? And he was like, well, what do you do? And I said, well, what do you need me to do? I guess. Like, I just love track and field. And he was like, uh, do you run? And I was like, I will run. Yes, I've run before. <laughs> and then he was like, do you um, long jump? And I said, that's running and jumping. I could figure that out. I can figure out how to run and jump up, run and jump sideways. Like, I will do that for you. And then he was just like, have you thrown a javelin before? And I was like, spear throwing, I've never done. <laughs> but I will do it. And so I actually did the heptathlon for two years. Wow. In which I did, heptathlon is seven events over the course of two days. So I was hurdling, running, short distances, running middle distances, long jumping, high jumping, throwing. You don't throw a shot put. I was shot putting. I was pushing it because if you throw it you'll hurt your shoulder um and throwing javelin and then there's this i'm sorry we're getting off on this tangent but you're letting me talk about keep track. going I, I love tangents <laughs> very exciting yeah. um my goal was to be able to go to the longest running uh intercontinental athletic event in the history of the world which is the harvard yale versus oxford cambridge track meet 
Now, some people might say like, isn't the Olympics older than that? But the modern day Olympics are not older than that because they had to like take a break at some point, which now makes this the oldest athletic competition. And so apparently like the men's track teams used to get on boats and travel across the the ocean to go run these track meets. So my lifelong goal was to like, at that point, my, in my like 19 years old self, my lifelong goal was to make it to that track meet. And I qualified because the Yale long jumper got hurt and I came in second. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going. And then I went and I believe our meet was at Oxford and I won the long jump. And the long jump coach was like, so you're really bad at throwing things. <laughs> How about you just focus on long jump? She's <laughs> like, you're not a great hurdler. You're, you're really fast. You're a good long jumper. Let's just focus on long jump so you don't keep throwing things very poorly. <laughs> and that's how I became like, just like a full on long jumper was over there. Um, and I just, I loved it. Like, I just, ugh, I love track and field. I know I've said this like 30 times. No, this is great. You said you didn't know anything about sports, but here you are. We oh can yeah. Do- I mean, track and field is a sport. Really? Yes. <laughs> track and field is a sport guys. It's oh, it's a sport. sport. It's just in the United States. It's not (laughs) track and field and soccer are just like things that other countries appreciate a lot, Mm -hmm. but we have a lot of other things going on here. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a sports person though. Like Andrew's family grew up watching lots of football. Andrew played football. He was really good at baseball. I like started running track in high school because it was easy. Like you just run. (laughs) And and then I realized I loved it because it's like, you get out of it as much as you put into it. It's literally just pure athleticism and it's not dependent on other people. Um, unless you're in a relay race in which it's delightfully dependent on other people. (laughs) But yeah, I, that is my, that is my sports thing is I love track and field and I love watching football obviously, but I do not know all the rules still. And um, sometimes I ask very embarrassing questions to my husband where I'm like, I don't understand why they called a flag there. It just looks like he was running and then he kind of got out of a line, but then he got back in the line and that seemed really hard. So the effort should have been there. You know, the effort grades, I'm not... You know, it's not unusual to question a flag being thrown in a Browns game. Like that is actually like you're picking up on questioning. You should have seen me picking up. I had like a three week diatribe after that helmet to helmet contact where I very much was part of that. And Andrew was just, you know, he, he knows that you just have to brush it off because there's nothing I can do about it now where I'm like, I'm still mad. very angry and every once in a while I'll see it resurface somewhere and then I'm mad for hours again (laughs) so I feel like our job out of this interview is to get you a burner account that no one in your family knows is you you could let out the steam just like all of us that see these things and get mad Yes, just, think, just just think about that. We'll come up with a great burn. I don't know, like long jumper for no, it can't no, it can't be it can't be anything <laughs> that can be traced back to her 
in any way, shape or form. So it's gotta be like, like hockey I, fan 74 or something like that. Yeah. Or like, I really know sports rules. <laughs> <laughs> I really know sports rules 92 or something. Like that. <laughs> oh, all right. And don't forget you have to have a cartoon avatar because that's, that's how you, that's how Not you do honest. your burners. Oh yeah. Of course. Yes. Or I could just put a whole different person. That's I'm true. Gonna, I'm just going to put a screenshot of this whole thing and they're just going to have to be like, who, who is that? I thought, is this, is this Brittany's burner account? Be like, no. <laughs> who is this? Like, yes. Know. If you ask Twitter, Brittany has 10 burners. Oh yeah. <laughs> so many burners. Right. Um, all right. So we will get back to your, your studies. Um, you studied business and sociology. What made you pursue those paths? Did it have anything to do with growing up, your lifestyle? And then how did you merge them together for a professional career? Yeah, good question. So I ended up studying sociology in undergrad, um, partially because I, I kind of knew what I was interested in. If I if I were to give advice to people, if we have any high schoolers listening to this or college freshmen listening to this, uh, I think unless you know exactly what you're going to be when you grow up and if that's like pre-med because it takes forever to get through medical school, just study what you find is interesting and the world will find a way of getting through that. And because sociology, everybody was like, what are you going to do with that? Why don't you just study like genetics so that you can be stuck in one one small track for the rest of your life and I, w- I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up I um, started at Harvard I thought I was going to do psychology because it seemed interesting and then I took a social psychology class and social psychology really introduced to me a way that I could combine the things that I were naturally interested in so a lot of my studies as an undergrad focused on race, poverty, and education that I will admit had everything to do with how I grew up. I was like on a mission at that point to say, okay, the situation that you're born into should not predetermine the situation when you come out. Like, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair that kids in poverty are stuck. I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's fair that there's the whole like racial gap within education. I don't like that. And so when I took social psychology, which is almost sociology in some ways, I realized I am fascinated by this. And so I took that in undergrad. After undergrad, I actually went and lived in South Africa for a year um, and did community development work with children there. And I just thought it was also personally fascinating trying to think about how they were adjusting to post-apartheid life, given that my, my naivete, when I was like, we've come so far in the United States, how are they doing this in South Africa when they're you know a little bit behind us? We've not come that far. But um, the way that I ended up putting that into my career, which is just very strange and interesting, is when I came back, I started working at Google and I worked at Google for four years. And I was mostly... I was in people operations, um, which is like kind of HR, but a lot more. And a lot of the work that I did was internal communications. It was a little bit of like the marketing aspect of it. Um, And when people were like, well, how are you meshing those two together? And I said, sociology is understanding how different groups of people react to things. I find that to be fascinating. I, I think it's 
very fascinating. I could just read forever about how um, back in the day, you know, like big body wash companies like Dove were advertising in black communities in Detroit showing blonde women and wondering why their products weren't flying off the shelves. Things that seem very obvious to us now, but were like sociological phenomenons back then. Uh, and I remember I wrote a paper in undergraduate about how, um, how I actually thought that multiracial families and biracial people would be a very interesting thing to put out into marketing because the way that people were looking at things back in 2008, 2009, that would make them do a double take and make them notice things better. And now again, it's not a phenomenon anymore. I'd like to think someone read my paper and Cheerios, General Mills read my paper, made all those great commercials. Um, but I've always been interested in that. And so I ended up going back to school, going to business school after working at Google for a while saying, you know what? Sociology makes me really interested in marketing. I'm going to do marketing. I'll admit low key lifelong dream career has always been to do marketing at Nike during an Olympic year, obviously on their track and field line. So I was going to do that. And I actually got into a business school that is known for marketing, which is Kellogg, um, which is Northwestern school. And when I went to their admitted students weekend, it just didn't, it didn't fit. It, it was just a different culture. And Yale was like decently hippie and nerdy. And that's what I needed. They were like, oh yeah, when spring comes, we do yoga in the courtyard. Like, <laughs> I don't even know how to do yoga, but I love that you want to do yoga. And I loved it. And I started off being like, yeah, I'm going to do marketing or I'm going to open a charter school. Let me tell you, business school is like getting an undergraduate degree and all over again, where you don't actually know what you're doing. But um, it has really helped me because now I work at a smaller tech company, which is a so much fun. It was founded by a bunch of Google engineers. And um, it's fun to be at a company through the startup phases, like watching it. You, you're always like, oh, are we going to go public? Are we going to go public and IPO? Are we going to get acquired by somebody? Um, and because I went to business school, I like know a little bit of everything that it takes to run a company. More, I know who to ask questions to. And the job that I'm doing now is basically focused on um, internal communication. So like company gatherings, all those internal events. That's what I do now, which again is sociology, which is like having that innate ability to want to know how to grasp different groups of people. How do I tell an engineer something and tell a salesperson the same thing? You don't tell them the same thing, but you have the same outcome that you need. It's, it's kind of like marketing all in one. Um, and I also work on our DEI efforts, our diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, because after last June, that's what happens at every company. <laughs> Somebody's now working on it. But um, the company was small enough when I joined two years ago that I've really helped build programs there that needed some of that background that I had, needed some of that experience that I had. And we've been able to hire other people to actually run them. Um, and so that's why I keep saying I now do internal communications because the cool thing about a smaller company is that I did a little bit of everything up 
through there. And this is just where I've landed. And I think I'll, this will be my niche for a little while. So um, it's been, it's been fun, but yeah, it's an undergrad, unless you know, you're going to be a doctor or, you know, exactly what you're doing, study something that you're passionate and interested in, because you'll get much better grades than trying to just squish yourself into something you think your parents want. It's good advice. I love that advice. Excellent advice. Can you tell that advice to my dad? I know it's like 10 years later. They, <laughs> Brittany and Brie have, have heard this story, but when I like my, when I got into school, I was an astrophysics major. Like that was my major going into college and a semester in, I realized that that's not what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. So I switched my major to music. My dad, who was an engineer, flipped his shit. Like he lost it, but he also accepted it because he realizes that like I'm bullheaded enough that he can't convince me. <laughs> like, other, like if I wanted to study music, I was going to study music no matter what. So he, he calmed down eventually, but I just, I love that thing. Cause that's, you know, pretty much how I did it. I mean, I don't think that I necessarily wasted a semester in, in a STEM field, but I could have done a lot more, I think earlier, if I had known going in, I should have stuck with music rather than be like, Oh, I'm going to go into science. No. Yeah. I mean, we all, we've all wasted the first semester. Like we all, yeah. <laughs> the first semester is like the core curriculum. That's when I Harvard confirmed I was bad at math, which was really <laughs> sad. Um, but uh, I think we all waste the first semester and it's kind of like a rite of passage. I think oh, yeah. undergrad, you study what you love, you figure out what you love. And despite what I just said about business school, graduate school is where you're like very aware of how much all these classes cost and you hone in on something that you're going to get, that's going to direct you towards your position or your desired field of study. But yeah, the business school still gives you much more leeway than like medical school or law school. There's, there's still a lot of wiggle room in business school. So what drew you to go to school on the East Coast being a Southern California girl? And I imagine you probably didn't really travel that much outside of Southern California growing up. So what, what made you look at schools like Yale, Harvard and those Ivy Leagues on the East Coast rather than you know equitable schools on, on the West Coast like UCLA or USC or, or something like that? So I, um, I mean, the sense of wander, I've never know if I've said this out loud, wanderlust wander lust it looks really cute on a tattoo and on your wall I don't know. <laughs> the actual words sound really weird when I say it out loud but if you know what that means like this like yeah. innate desire to just get out and see something different I always wanted that and I know this sounds silly but like high school Britain thought California was just boring I lived in the same 15 mile radius my whole life and I was like sure cool we have earthquakes and fires that's neat like I want to know what a snowstorm feels like. I just wanted to see something <laughs> different because I had never really seen it. And I didn't realize until later when my mom was like, so you went as far as you could without leaving the country. And I was like, you are right. I did. Um, it's because I really just wanted to see something different. Like I had heard that the culture of the East Coast was different. I knew that the weather was different. But that's really, I just needed to see something different and I needed it like a reason, I guess. Um, and I knew I didn't want to go to college super close to home because that felt 
too easy, like socially, it was too easy socially. And it's not like, that's not for everybody. That was just how I was doing. I was like, I must see this. And it provided me, you know, more opportunities. I was a very independent person. So I remember my first summer between, I think it was freshman and sophomore year, I was like, I need to go volunteer out of the country. I'm going to Indonesia. And my mom was like, why? And I was like, because I don't know where it is. I don't even know where it is. And she was like, they just had a bunch of tsunamis and bird flu. And I was like, hmm, sounds like they need help. Not, and I don't mean help as in like white savior. I'm not trying to like do like the American savior thing. But I, I was like, I couldn't tell you where it was on a map. So I wanted to go. And wow. um, I've been a little reckless ever since. I just want to, I, I'm fascinated by culture. This is the sociology thing. And I, I am fascinated by even how like the Midwest culture is very different than the Southern culture, different than the East yeah. coast culture, different than the West coast culture. So it is. I, I love that you talk about East coast culture. Cause um, I grew up in Northern Virginia, right outside of Washington, DC. And like the, the like 13 colony culture. that's what I call it. Cause like any of the States that were one of the original 13 colonies, are so weird and bizarre compared to the rest of the country. Like they're, they're so weird. And I don't know that like that East coast culture gets talked about enough. Like, I, I don't think people are quite aware of it. Like they'll go to a place like Boston and they'll visit like Fenoil hall or go to Fenway and be like, yeah, Boston's so cool. But like, you really don't get the sense of like what that city is really, really like when you're in those super touristy areas. So I just, I, I, I love that you brought that up. That's so awesome fascinating there are good people yeah. everywhere and there are weirdos everywhere so yes true and it's just the flavor of weirdo that you get <laughs> is really fun to figure out okay my turn my turn <laughs> i've been dying to ask you this so you know we put it on the sheets um i shared the link with the girls so they could read the the thing that i'm talking about but in 2015 you wrote a letter to the Yale class of 2017 and it was titled make the most of the meantime. And I loved the message behind it. Uh, I found myself smiling while reading it because while it was directed towards students, I think we as adults could stand to learn a thing or two from this letter. So if you can please elaborate on the message behind it for our listeners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will admit I hadn't looked at that since 2015. And then <laughs> I looked at it again and I was slightly like impressed with myself. And <laughs> you should be. Also yes. a little embarrassed because I was just like, oh, I I don't know. Like I'm so funny. I I I don't know. But so making the most of the meantime, I feel like there there times in our life where we know where we are and we know where we want to be and there's a gap in between it's the meantime we're like well you know right now i'm at that point right now i'm in graduate school and um i want to be a finance executive so in the meantime i'm just gonna you know just try to survive and and the way that applies now <laughs> i had to like you know, swallow my own medicine when I reread that because I was like, oh, I'm not <laughs> most of the meantime because I've had a lot of in the meantimes where um, I would say like, so the, before we came back to Cleveland this summer, Andrew 
was living in Philadelphia. I was living in Atlanta. And it's because we both tried to lean in real hard to our jobs. And we're like, just lean in. Cheryl Sandberg would say, just lean in. <laughs> Which means that I ended up in Atlanta with two babies and a dog by myself working full-time. So I was like working a full-time job and single parenting and trying to keep them alive. And I was living in the meantime. Like I, instead of saying like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna embrace it. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna do Atlanta. You know, I was like, in the meantime, I'm just gonna survive. Like, I'm not gonna care about the day to day. I'm just gonna survive. And uh, I think with the pandemic, a lot of us are living in the meantime and it's not our fault. Like, yeah, it happens. And this meantime is, you know, I used to go on vacations or I used to go to Disney World. I don't know what people used to do. What did we used to do? I forgot. I used to go on airplanes. Um, I used to go to the grocery store with my mouth wide open. <laughs> just being in church. With this raw the dog in the air. Right. <laughs> and then there's this like goal that we all have is like at some point, the majority of the world is going to be vaccinated or these restrictions are going to be gone. And in the meantime, I'm just going to survive. I'm just in survival mode. And believe me, I've been in survival mode. Um, whereas some people have really done a great job of taking advantage of this meantime. I've heard of people say, yeah, I have lunch with my kids every day now. And I'm like, wow, I don't want to have lunch with my kids every day. <laughs> when I hear people say that, I'm like, wow, way to establish new routines. It's like way to establish where you are right now without just waiting for things to happen. I've heard people say, yeah, you know, right now in this pandemic, it just means I'm spending great time with my family. I've learned to cook. Remember when everyone started baking bread in the beginning? Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. I, I did that yes. once. And then I reminded myself why I don't like baking. Yeah. I didn't, I was, I was not living in the meantime. <laughs> survive living by myself with two babies out of daycare and trying to work full time. Um, and so I wasn't living in the meantime. Like I read that and I was like, Oh, I was so cute in 2015 <laughs> and I wish I had taken some of my own medicine and it's made me really even just like rethink what I'm doing now. There's still a meantime, even outside of this pandemic. I feel like since we moved here, I've, I, I guess if I'm being honest, just with, the kind of job that I'm supporting my spouse in, you're always living in a meantime because nothing feels permanent. Yep. And so you're, you know, it, it changes how you do community. It changes how you invest in uh, like your situation because you're like, well, you know, contract might end and then who knows what's going to happen. Sure. Um, we've taken a very different approach in Cleveland this time around because we're, very much assuming we're going to be here for a long time. Oh, but, um, that's safe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But it's a, yeah, it's, it's putting a more discreet timeline on this like carpe diem idea. It's like in the meantime, just like what special unique opportunity is here in this meantime, instead of just trying to survive and waiting for something to happen to you as opposed to making something happen with you right now. And so I, I frequently said during this pandemic, it's terrible to waste a good crisis. Like when, you, when you're in crisis mode, you're gonna learn something. You're gonna learn something 
It might suck. You may not realize what you learned until 20 years later, but you're going to learn something. So as soon as you feel like you're in a crisis, you know, you sit there and you're like, oh, don't want to waste a crisis. Never want to waste a good crisis. <laughs> what am I learning or what people am I reaching out to? Who, who am I getting a new relationship with because I need them or they need me? Who like, what relationships am I building in this meantime while we're all kind of feeling like we're in a never ending crisis? Mm -hmm. How are we, how are we differentiating it from, from yesterday or just sitting here waiting for something to happen to us? Yeah. That's a bad explanation. No, it was, it was incredible. Awesome. Yes. I'm so inspired. I want to go run through a wall right now. <laughs> go long jump. Yeah, I'm gonna go long jump through a wall right now. Listen, the Brown should hire you to give pep talks. Yes. You should do like at halftime, you should go in that locker room and just get them ready to go. Although I, I feel like Jarvis Landry might be like Ms. Barry, that that's my job. Yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've got this. I'm field and I need you to catch things and you to run fast. <laughs> <laughs> And that's 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 the action item out of this. <laughs> the action so item. Fire me as there. <laughs> so when we talk about, I guess your meantime, you have had a really interesting career, just from your childhood to your education and what you've done professionally. What would you say your proudest moments, both professionally and personally, have been in your life? Mm. You know, it's funny because I knew this was coming and yet I still don't have an answer for it. Um, I can go personally. Let's talk about the meantime. Um, I survived this last year and um, I will admit as a working mom, it was very, very hard. I cried many, many tears and I have the utmost sympathy for single parents who have no other partner to rely on, not only emotionally, but financially. Um, I have my heart literally just like weeps for parents who are maybe engaging in some risky business and leaving kids alone by themselves because they have to go to work to pay rent and their children relied on school lunches. Um, I, I have to put that out there because I'm not diminishing how hard it was for me because everybody experiences hard. Um, but I know that I'm lucky. That being said, when this pandemic hit one year ago, uh, I, like I've been saying, I was in a state by myself. I was in Atlanta um, because I wanted to work at this tech company. I had two very young children and my awesome dog and they couldn't go to daycare. No one could come in our homes. My in-laws actually do live in Georgia, but they had coronavirus. So, and that was when it was like really scary. Like it's always really scary, but like you couldn't even get tested for it. The doctor was just like, you have it, but we don't have enough tests. So like, just don't go around people. Cause it was March. So they were like in the first wave of people um, that had it. And I cried many tears because I was like, I can't put my children back in my stomach, but I desperately <laughs> need to do it because I also 
can't work with, what did I have then? Like a one and a two-year-old. So I can't do it. Um, and women have been dropping out of the workforce in droves in this last year. I worry that we've like all the work that we did to get women in the workforce has now been not all of it, but like a lot of it has been put behind because child rearing responsibilities fall on us. And then we moved to Cleveland in the middle of a pandemic, which was like, you know, that's fun. Um, and <laughs> this, the Browns did an amazing job with their protocols, but it also meant, again, I know I'm lucky in the grand scheme of things, but it also meant that like, I didn't do, I didn't go anywhere. I didn't see people. I didn't like, I was not going to be the reason that coronavirus was going to get into that building. Andrew got tested every single day. I got tested two to three times a week. Our kids got tested. We did temperature checks multiple times a day. And like, I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't ask for help. I couldn't bring people into my home. At one time I broke and I was like, I need help. And I brought a delightful young woman, a babysitter in that was like, I just need you to be here for a few hours so I can finish my work. And then the next day she told me she tested positive with coronavirus. And guess what that meant? That meant my husband moved out for two weeks. He literally moved out. So I was just like, the kids are now stuck with me. I'm literally trying to work in the middle of pandemic and some of the work that I was doing when you just pick up all the things. Sometimes that work is laying off 20% of your workforce. So like that was hard. And I had nothing. I had like, I, I had everything in the world. I have all the resources in the world, except the world is closed off. And so I think mentally I have not, I will admit, I don't think I've recovered from it. I'm, I had a hard time. I cried so much. Um, and the fact that I am still standing and have enough of my wits to me to say things like true story on Twitter and make catchy jokes. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that. My kids seem to be mostly mentally stable. I think they're okay. Um, we're excited about the new addition to both our home team and the Cleveland team coming in. <laughs> uh, and so that has been, I guess it's kind of like a personal and professional one all wrapped in one. Like I, I think there's so many times where I was like, I guess I'm just quitting. Like I have to quit my job, I guess. I guess I'm just going to quit my job. And I was fortunate enough to say, or I'll just work until two o'clock in the morning to somehow figure out how to do this. Um, and I'm, I, it's been like the hardest year of my life. And I'm proud of the fact that I've been able to survive it, I would say, um, hopefully with grace. Well, and, I also think that people don't understand how stressful getting a COVID test is. Um, and then to have to get it multiple times a week for your husband to have to get it every single day. I had to get a COVID test a few weeks ago for the first time because I was around someone who tested positive and I was close contact. So I felt fine, but I go to the drugstore, I do the no contact test, and then I'm sitting on pins and needles for the rest of the day because I'm sitting there thinking, well, what if I'm asymptomatic? What if I've spread it around? And it's just mm -hmm. that those mental gymnastics you go through in the between the time that you take the test and the time that you receive the results. And you had to do that multiple times a week like just yeah. that by itself is stressful. Every, every time 
you for the in between time you're like oh yeah da, 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 just taking another test and then you're like oh, what if this is the one exactly and yeah. then like around big dates like the playoffs I was like oh my gosh oh my gosh what if I test positive for COVID and then Andrew doesn't get to go to his first like playoffs as a GM and every time you start off being like, yeah, it's fine. I would know if I had it. I'm just doing it as a precaution. And you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I have it. <laughs> I'm going to mess this up for everybody else. Um, because the close contact procedures that they had for the Browns were really extensive. So if I had it, Andrew would be knocked out. I mean, think about it. Our babysitter who was just in our house, but not like hanging out with Andrew, made it, had, made it so Andrew needed to move out for two weeks. So like that was that what if his mm -hmm. wife had it i was just like oh gosh <laughs> that's not gonna work he had to move out and he wasn't allowed in the office for like days so i was wow. just like i'm not gonna be the reason he misses this playoff game but then every time you kind of hope that you you almost like don't want to take the test because you're worried about the negative or the positive results so but it was fine it's fine yeah hopefully that like that's not a thing anymore next year i mean with vaccines oh. and stuff like yeah. you know like Whew, that's the mental aspect of that side of things too. Cause you, you're already putting so much pressure on yourself, um, you know, trying to survive with two children while working full time. And then to have that added pressure of like, well, I also am like partly dependent on my husband's job and livelihood and what's going on in his life. I mean, that's just the burden on your shoulders and women's shoulders just specifically in this time, because you're right. Like working moms, man, they were full-time moms while also being working moms, like pretty much for an entire year. And it, it's been a lot. It's really been a lot. Yeah. Unfortunately. It's been a lot. I feel things feel better now. Like my kids are in daycare. Yes. But I very much needed. And we still do temperature checks all day, every day, because that's the way the world functions. Yeah. But I will take that, you know, I'll, <laughs> I will take that. Um, and even finding a daycare when we came was just so, so hard because everything was so limited in capacity. Yep. So for a long time, we didn't have anybody. And this is a city where obviously we had lived here before, but I didn't need childcare. So, and none of our family lives near here. So I was literally just like care.com, <laughs> Facebook groups being like, hello, are there any strangers that I can pass <laughs> 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 I have no network here. So it was it was really stressful, but it's kind of weird how you get desensitized to it because yeah. now I'm like, but I'm fine now. I guess I I'm know. Fine now. So true. Well, speaking of your two little boys, we've talked about them a little bit um already in this ep in this episode. Um, but we've seen their photos dressed up as astronauts. Ah! Um they're adorable. First of all, um, they actually have a very good chance of being astronauts with your genes, um, and your husband's genes. I have a feeling we'll be seeing them one day, um, as astronauts. Um, but I want to, I want to know from you, you talked about like the work-life balance or the lack thereof of work-life balance this past year. Um, can you share like what has been your biggest parenting win and maybe what you felt like was maybe a defeat this past year? Yeah. So, oh gosh, 
So I have two little boys. Their names are Zion, Z-I-O-N, it's like lion with a Z, and Cairo, K-A-I-R-O, which is like Cairo with a K. Um, I'm spelling that because people tend to mispronounce their names and I get very confused as to how that's happening. So um, <laughs> Cairo just turned two on Saturday. Oh, oh happy birthday. Um, oh, yay. Three and a half. And they, I think that every parent has a phase that they're made for and a phase that they're not made for. I've not yet found the phase that I'm made for, but I can tell you toddlers are not my phase. Um, <laughs> they, they're just, mm, Andrew loves this phase. Thankfully, he does not like newborns. And I'm like, I will take the lack of sleep and cuddles. Like, I can do it. I can do that. The cuddles, they're so innocent. But they're not innocent when they're two and three years they're old. Not. They're not. <laughs> you know exactly what they're doing. Um, I think the biggest parenting win, oh gosh, I... I have gotten, I've tried to be very purposeful recently, but especially at the beginning of this pandemic and this year, um, on working on myself with anger management so I don't lash out at my children. And it's usually my three-year-old, unfortunately, that I lash out at, which is really rough because he's very sensitive. And so then I cry because I made him cry and I, I know it wasn't fair that I yelled at him so badly to put the dinosaur truck down and put on your shoes. That was, that was earlier this week. Um, and I've like started like reading some tips and whatnot. Like I watch when he tantrums, I just watch him first and I close my mouth. So I don't say anything out of anger. Um, and so those are some of the things that I've like gradually gotten better at. I will admit pregnant Britain does not have any patience at all. Grossly pregnant Britain, which is where I am at right now, I'm like 35 <laughs> weeks pregnant. So I'm like huge and tired and in pain. I really have no patience. And so I'm, I'm redoing all of that. But the fact that I, if I were to be introspective, I think the fact that I recognized that I needed to work on myself it wasn't working on my kids. It was working on myself to better them, to be better people um, was a win. That was like a good parenting win for me. Uh, defeat. I mean, <laughs> again, back, I hate to like keep talking about this pandemic, but at the beginning, I'm sure a lot of parents can identify with this. The first week of the pandemic, we all had our schedules and we were just going to mimic what the schools did and we had, it was like camp. It was like camp, stay at home with mommy. And it was going to be <laughs> so much fun. And I held that schedule for about a day. And then it just turned into like, do you want to watch TV? I know I said no screen time because I'm a millennial parent and I was told to not give you like TV and cart like processed foods but here are all the snacks that I found <laughs> and here is all the tv and you know at first it was just sesame street but now we've gotten into dinosaur train it's mostly dinosaur train that's really all we watch is dinosaur train um and I hate to call that like a defeat it feels defeating yes <laughs> 
this is not judgment on anybody who does do that. It's just when you set out with a goal and you're like, camp mommy will be so great and we'll walk around in nature and I'm going to teach you about fossils through the, the leaves that are on the concrete. Like these are my real thoughts. I was like, my kids by the end of this pandemic, Zion will be playing the violin, even though I don't know how to play the violin. He will play the violin because we will have had so much good one-on-one -on -one time. And it literally was just like, what do I need to do to keep you from making noise on these video calls and staying at an arm's length away from me so I don't get frustrated with you? Um, and so, yeah, I'm a little disappointed in that. I also, because everybody suffers from a little bit of jealousy and comparison. Yes. And I, I know that there are people who manage to do that and their kids are playing the violin now. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. How did you do that? I, I gave Zion like a little guitar and I was like, you'll learn to play the guitar during the pandemic. But then I realized I had to know how to play the guitar to teach him and I don't know how to play the guitar. So now we just have a cute little guitar. If you guys know how to play the guitar and how to teach a three-year-old how to play guitar, please come help me. Um, yeah, I just, I wish I had like taken better advantage of some of that one-on-one -on -one time, but the reality was that while I was trying to work, I just survived. And then when I was done working, I was so exhausted mentally and physically that I still had nothing left. There was still yes. nothing left. And I'm still kind of in that, like at the end of the day, I, I mean, every morning, you know, I, I get the kids up, I get them ready for school, I take them to school, I come back, I go to work, I go pick them up from school, we eat dinner, and then they're like, mommy, and I'm like, when is daddy coming home? <laughs> <laughs> if anybody has like any thoughts about when daddy comes home, it's very late. So by then, like if he comes home before they go to bed, I'm just like, you are taking them now. And I just, they still love me for some reason. I have no idea what, but like my games with them recently has been laying on the ground and being like, run around me, just run. <laughs> so the game that you can play since you're very pregnant, you can tell them that you are a sun and they're planets and their job is to rotate around you since they like space. And that'll just be, that's how you get them to run around and you. you. Claimed that you wasted that first semester. <laughs> yeah. That is some astrophysics right there. <laughs> yeah. So that that's your game that you play with them because they have the interest in space. You just say, mommy is the sun. You are Mer Mercury. You are Venus. Show me your planetary path around. You may, you may have just signed yourself up for some babysitting. I know. There you go. <laughs> I like, I actually don't mind. So I, when I first moved to Cleveland, um, I was living with one of my cousins and she has a uh, young son. He's eight or nine now, I believe he was five when I moved in. Um, and that was, you know, going from, you know, like single ready to mingle to like being partially responsible for a child that wasn't mine. That was such a huge like change for me. And before that I was like, I don't like kids, but after living with, um, a child from ages five to eight, I'm like, Little boys are the best. I love them. If I ever have kids, I want a little boy because I want to watch Marvel movies with him. I want to play dinosaurs with him. Like I've, I want, I want to play race cars. Let's go. Well, great. So it sounds like you're ready to babysit. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. For babysitters. Uh, I, I, 
come on, come on down. We've got little boys. They're not quite into Marvel movies yet. One Probably still a little young for that. Yeah. Yeah. We have like a Black Panther alarm clock for some reason um, <laughs> with no batteries on purpose. And <laughs> that is the, the essence, but dinosaurs and space and nothing about space, not like the smart space stuff, not like planets and things like that. Literally just, I want to go to space. Aww. That is all my three-year-old wants. He wants to go on a rocket ship with windows and he wants to go into space. And we've gone to the Great Lakes Science Center a couple times and um, he will not go without wearing an astronaut outfit. Oh, oh that's Does he love the, like the NASA exhibit on the first floor? I'm sure yes. that's probably his favorite part. He loves it. Yeah. He loves it so much. He's also very much like a theme dresser. We went to um, the Natural History Museum, which I have to like call the Dinosaur Museum because I don't know how else to explain it to him. <laughs> and he will only wear dinosaur clothes there. Aww. Like, I don't, I, yeah. And I don't know how else to explain it, but there's like a theme to his life. And so Aww. if I take him anywhere, he has to dress up for the occasion. I love that. But the full on That's space, amazing. all of the patches have fallen off Aww. and I need to figure out how to get those patches back on because he's really sad about his patches coming off. And he's very specific, like which shoes are space boots. And I'm, I did that to him, <laughs> trying to get him to put some shoes on one day and three-year-olds don't forget things. Two-year-olds forget everything. Three-year-olds forget nothing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Call me up. I'll, I'll come help. I'll babysit. Yes. Get my COVID test, test negative. I tested negative last time I took one. So let's go. Great. All right, everyone. Well, that wraps up part one of the interview with Britton Berry. Again, uh, we had a wonderful conversation with her and we have so much to, to share with you guys that we actually have to split this out into two episodes. So stay tuned for part two that'll be released on Thursday. Much more to come from her. So many more laughs. We thank her again for taking the time out with us to talk about all things Britton Berry on That's What B Said. She's a B. Hopefully we have her on again soon and you guys can catch the rest on Thursday. 